Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on China, Asia, and the Pacific Century. I'm John Yu. I'm a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a law professor at UC Berkeley, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Misha Oslin, fellow at the Hoover Institution, longtime friend. Uh, Misha, why don't you say hello and uh, welcome our guest for the day. Hello, John. How are you doing, first of all? Pretty good, pretty good. Shops are starting uh, to reopen. I, uh, you know, in honor of our guest, I tried to see if I could get a French baguette this morning, but our great bakery just closed and went out of business, the one right near the law school, uh, Tartine, which was supposed to be the best bakery in America, according to Gourmet Magazine. But there are not enough lovers of French cuisine, even in San Francisco and Berkeley, to keep it alive. So sad. So you, sad. You can only eat so many baguettes yourself, John. We know you tried. We know you did your best. And hopefully another Tartine will open up to brighten your day. But we have, some, we have someone who's going to brighten our day right now. And we are um, very, very happy to welcome to the show Nadej Roland. Um, for those of you who do uh, China work or, or look at Asia, particularly in the Washington, D.C. ecosystem, which is, as you know, where I am located, Nadej is well known to all of us. Uh, she worked for 20 years for the French government, actually, as a analyst on Asia and China for the Ministry of Defense. And then made the hop over the pond to here to join us uh, in the think tank world, becoming a fellow at the um, National Bureau of Asian Research, which is has been for decades one of the leading outlets to study not just the, the parts of Asia that we all look at, i.e. China and Japan and Korea, but, but all the rest of Asia as well. But we've asked Nadej to come in particular because she has just written uh, quite frankly, an incredible report uh, for NBR, which I encourage everyone to take a look at. Um, it is available on the NBR website, and I'm going to get the exact title of it because I always uh, have my own my own words in my head. But it is China's vision for a new world order, and and I. I sincerely mean this, and I think if you're going to say, look, what are among the, the five, you know, ten, five to ten things I really need to read to understand China today, this is going to be one of those reports. Uh, this is going to be one of them, uh, because this tells you not what we're thinking, but what the Chinese are thinking. So, Nadej, welcome to our program. Well, thank you very much, Misha and Joan, for your um, very gracious introduction and from, for having me on the show. Uh, I'll try not to bother you too much with my French accent. I'll, I'll try to no, no, keep it, it civilized. Far more <laughs> want to listen to your beautiful accent than to listen to Misha. We, we need some class. We need some bonjour, class. Bonjour, madame. Bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> and John is already driving away in droves the listeners that we have. So we're, we're gonna we're gonna go right we're gonna go right to Nadej because you're not you're not gonna get off easily, Nadej, because this report, uh, sixty four page report, is so complex in many ways and so detailed. We're only gonna be able to scratch the surface, but we are going to try to to um, really get you to to walk us through it. And I want to kick off by talking about words. Now the report is is as you label it, China's vision for a new 
world order, global world order, which is something that Americans have been talking about probably for almost a decade now. But you don't start with that. You don't start with, you know, this is what China wants at the end of the day. You start with words and what you call discourse power. Why should we pay attention to China's words, to the words coming out of Beijing? Uh, and what are you talking about with discourse power? What, what do we need to know? Yeah, well, it's not my formulation, you know, in 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 this report and in in the previous uh, work I've done, I've uh, tried to focus not so much on what the external world is saying about China, but what about China says about itself. And it starts with uh, a deep dive into, of course, the official documents. You absolutely need to to read them because they give you the broad directions, uh, the guidelines for the for the party and the the party state and different actors under its leadership. Um, to uh, move forward, and they, they give absolute essential indications of that. And uh, in those documents, uh, words do matter. The formulations are extremely important. Um, and also uh, looking at all the, uh, the, um, the debates, the internal debates uh, that are taking place, uh, place with the uh, within the Chinese elites, intellectual elites. So in a sense, you know, it's, uh, if I may use this comparison, um, when you look at uh, those official documents or white papers or speeches, it's a sort of a Bible. Uh, and the discussions, internal discussions by scholars and experts in China are the sort of... Uh, exegesis of the Bible. So it's the, and the words are extremely important because then uh, they give indications about what the party state wants and how those different groups interpret them. Um, because most of the formulations are, are a little bit blurry and that's uh, to give them more flexibility in the end. And discourse power, is it's not my formulation, it's a, it's a, a Chinese formulation, uh, which can be interpreted either as discursive rights, you know, the right to speak, uh, or a, as a really power, the power to uh, not just express yourself, but express uh, concepts, ideas, uh, and also to shape the discussion and to shape uh, the the not just the concepts but also the entire um, order um, that is underlying or that it that rests on those concepts. So it's a it's a sort of a, a philosophical almost philosophical um, um, description, but it's a very very important component of the discussion that's taking place in Beijing, and it's it's part of uh, of China's own uh, vision for itself as the preponderant power, resting not just on material power, but also on this capacity to use words in order to shape uh, where where the world is going. Right. So so you actually, you write that this discourse power is really about altering norms themselves. Now, we, we think 
generally that norms are altered through often through hard power you know the or or smart power you know, all these terms are, are sort of you know they're overused now but whether you use your economic power your military power you put political pressure on people that's how the norms are altered we're, we're used to talking about the south china sea you're actually talking about something much more fundamental that the the, the very conceptualization of what the international order should be is changed by Beijing. And when we say Beijing, we're talking about the party, the CCP's Mm -hmm. use of words. Is that correct? Right, right. Yes, I should have said that um, from the from the beginning. When I say Beijing, or when I say China, it's the under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. Right. uh, Yeah, John, please. Let me just jump in. I want to follow up there. So, um, you know, France is a one of the great uh, homes of realist thinking in international relations, from uh, Talleyrand on, or Napoleon, or, you know, Cardinal Richelieu, and, and America, too, uh, after World War II. Both, both, we're both countries that have been wedded to, you know, realism. And, I, I, but when you're describing China, it's something different than realism. So maybe you could explain to the listeners, how is China thinking or acting differently than a purely realist approach to international politics would uh, predict? No, so I think think, um, the Chinese elites are really, um, they are realists at the core. I think they really think in terms of raw power. Um, material power. Uh, they're Leninists, so they ha- they really believe in in, in power. Um, but when they look at um, how countries like the U.S. and especially the U.S. Uh, has been dominating the international <clears throat> the international order, uh, they have come to realize that yes, of course, you know, the U.S. is a economically, politically, militarily very powerful country. But there is also that other component, which is in the realm of ideas, um, that is missing uh, from China's perspective. So as its own material power has grown, economically, obviously, but also diplomatically and to a certain extent, militarily as well. Um, the the Chinese elites feel like this component of power is missing. Um, it's not like they think um, um, that this is something that is growing um, in a bubble, but what they believe is that it goes together. It's and that China, uh, sorry, that the U.S.'s influence over the world with its concept concepts and norms and values. Um, couldn't happen this way if the U.S. wasn't so powerful um, in the other components of power. So you see what I mean? So this is what they see in their rival, and they want to have the same for themselves. Yes, yeah, so they want to construct a system where other countries happily participate um, without having to be compelled. So you look at the United States and France, Germany, you know, all our the Western allies after World War II, they act cooperatively because they agree on a set of principles. Everybody benefits. Uh, what's China's ideology that they're going to use to attract other nations? They seem to be more like bullies uh, when it comes to their own part of the world. So that's when I was looking at your report, I was trying to figure out what is this 
um, attractive ideology that's going to bring allies to its uh, side. It's often said China doesn't really have allies other than the ones it compels. Um, whereas, you know, the great story of the West after the war is that we've all voluntarily cooperated. The United States hasn't had to force countries into NATO. Yeah, it's and it's beyond that. I think it's also a a common a common recognition and a common belief in the liberal democratic values, you know, and the and yes. the un- universal values as well. I think this is really the the bedrock of our common understanding, not just for alliances, but also for where the world should go as well. Yeah. So I wonder yeah. what is the Chinese version of that so, because it so, doesn't seem to have one. <laughs> right. And yeah. and and that's the problem with this articulation of discourse power. And this is the conundrum in which uh, Beijing is right now because they feel like this component is missing but at the same time what is it that China can offer to the rest of the world? Is it you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics. I think this is not really appealing uh, necessarily for for humanity right now, um, and 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 so I'm not so sure what is it that they want to offer, and I don't think that they really know themselves either. You know what? I mean, de- describing China's own ideology is very complicated because it's partly based on, you know, a Leninist system. It has components of Marxist-Leninism in in its uh, social, political, economical system. It has some elements of capitalism. Uh, It has some elements uh, that have been also repurposed of Confucianism. So it's, it's like this sedimentation of different components that makes it very difficult to to define very clearly, um, so and so so that that's where that's the ferment in in that discussion within China. What is it that China can offer? So, in a very short way, um, what the the leadership tells now to the rest of the world is that China can offer a solution or an option. Uh, to the rest of the world. So basically what they mean is that uh, China has put in place some solutions and some options for itself, you know, um, authoritarian, politically, um, open to a certain extent economically, that have served its own development very well, and that other countries can also choose that option instead of liberal democracy to be prosperous and to be stable. That's that's the implicit offer that China is giving to the rest of the world, rather than saying, you know, uh, proletariat of the world unite or anything like that. So, Nadej, why why the offer in the first place? If if the point is that they are trying to offer an alternative vision, China. Uh, and again, when we say China, in this case, we mean China, has benefited more than almost any other country from the post-war international system. Obviously, once we brought it in, um, Europe, of course, had normalized relations far earlier. But, you know, once Nixon and then Carter normalized relations in the 70s, uh, China has changed. It's unrecognizable from what it was mm-hmm. uh, half a generation ago. So what is the source of the discontent well, there are two main sources. The first is that the current 
system or the current organization of the world system perpetuates the dominance of the West and, and especially of the United States. But the second one, which is equally or maybe more important, um, is that the current system is rooted in norms, principles, and values that are intrinsically antagonistic with the principles on which the Chinese Communist Party system is based. You know, those ideas, again, uh, uh, of you know, when you think about the core of what a liberal international order is, it's based on the premise of individual freedom. And the Chinese Communist Party is against that. Their view is state-led um, and certainly not promoting the, the freedom of individuals. Um, so at the core of this um, objection to the current order is this objection to, to those values and the, 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 the belief that um, the rights of the individual are um, sacred um, and universal and that they apply to everything. In reverse, the CCP believes that China is exceptional, that it is unique, that it has its own history, its own culture, its own civilization, its own path, and so that other models cannot apply to China itself. And now what's interesting is that there's a slight shift that it's not only China that it's exceptional, but also every country that is exceptional. So every country can choose their own model, uh, including China's own solution. And you don't have to be uh, a democracy. You don't have to choose uh, you know, the, the path of liberal democracy if you want to be prosperous, if you want to be successful. That's, that's the idea. So you, in the report, you trace uh, back the, uh, at least the articulation of this dissatisfaction that the party has with the liberal international system um, into the, at least the early 2000s in terms of sort of the, the, the current, uh, how would you put it, the, the, the current uh, period of acting upon it or attempting to act upon it, as opposed to going back to Mao. I mean, obviously we understand Mao's, you know, oppositional stance to uh, to both the old Chinese regime as well as, as the liberal world. But in terms of a China that had already been integrated into the world, you talk about this, again, this oppositional view going, going at least back to 2000 or the early 2000s. But what we're seeing today, how much of that is from Xi Jinping himself? How much how much of this do we lay at the feet of Xi Jinping, or is it something that's that's much larger than him, and he is he is simply uh, almost a vessel through which these contradictions, as our Marxist friends might say, are playing out? No, I think there's a there's a remarkable continuity uh, the after um, the demalization um, and after the the arrival of Deng Xiaoping in power. It's just that. Xi Jinping is, it, it's an accelerator and it's a really clear marker. Um, it's uh, of, of, of those ambitions that are unfolding. So it's not like those ambitions were not there before. It's just that China was too weak to act upon them. And this is why Deng Xiaoping decided to you know, keep a low profile and bide our time. All right. But it, 
the idea was never that biding the time would be in perpetuity uh, because China would become stronger eventually thanks to uh, those reforms um, and, and the accession to the WTO in 2001 and and the, the accelerated growth um, economically and in other domains. So um, already under Hu Jintao, we've seen a, a growing assertiveness in China's um, demeanor, in China's behavior, um, as well as in some, you know, filling the stones into uh, this discourse power area, like uh, the idea of a harmonious world. You know, people were kind of dismissive uh, about it, but it, it, it was already an indication that China was, again, starting to think about what what is our place in the world and what should we want? What kind of world organization do we want? Okay, a harmonious world, why not? Um, with Xi Jinping, again, it's, a, it's an acceleration, it's a clarification of these objectives. He's more visible and he's more vocal about them than any of his predecessors. And it's also a, an acceleration of the means um, based on, again, an assessment, a self-assessment of China's own growing power. So it's a, it's a convergence of these two things, of um, growing material power and the um, yeah, the, the growing assertiveness of, of China. Um, and now the desire that is clearly expressed to, in quote, move closer to the center stage. Um, so it's a continuation, I would say. Amisha, so, thank you. Yeah, during the Cold War, um, we're so used to thinking about is being focused on Europe, you know, Checkpoint Charlie, Berlin, uh, you know, the Fulda Gap and the like. But uh, an enormous part of the Cold War, and in many ways, perhaps the most important part of it, was fought in what was known as the Global South, uh, which, you know, whether it was Africa, it was Asia, it was the, the borderlands and the hinterlands. Um, you bring that concept back, uh, and we think again about the U.S.-China competition often in terms of the South China Sea, the Taiwan Strait, and the like. But you actually argue that the party is focusing on the global south, which which very much brings us back to a sort of Cold War concept, or at least a, the, potentially a, a Cold War mindset. Could you explain that a little bit more? Right. So it's not to say that China is not focused on its you know, maritime flank and and on the uh, U.S. alliance's presence um, in East Asia. I, I, this is really something that bothers Beijing, and it's still one of the priorities because of Taiwan, uh, because of the necessity that they feel to um, push against this, what they call in their own terms, this strang strangulation of China's strategic space. Um, so it's a, it's a very important priority. Um, but, you know, when we think about um, competition of great powers, uh, of course, the relationship and the management of the relationship with the U.S. is critical. But it's not just happening as a face-à-face. -face. You know, it's not just 
Beijing, Washington. It happens in a variety of domains, and it happens in a variety of geographic areas. So the, the U.S.-China competition actually takes place everywhere around the world. It's just that Washington doesn't seem to be aware of it yet. Um, it suddenly happens right. in Europe, uh, you know, when uh, China is is trying to um, divide uh, the uh, uh, the Europeans uh, so that they don't have a, uh, a cohesive uh, response to its uh, assertiveness. And it is increasingly happening uh, it, over the global south uh, that Beijing has identified as a sort of a soft underbelly of uh, the American influence. Um, if you want to uh, you know, push for an alternative model, a model uh, that, again, is not liberal, is not democratic, uh, and, you know, encourages authoritarianism, um, mercantilist approaches. Um, this is possibly a, a geographic space in which you have more chances to succeed. Um, and, you know, I think that the current uh, pandemic also shows you, uh, it's an illustration of that priority given by Beijing to the global south because um, the demonstration of assistance, uh, medical assistance, and um, is, is, is really enlightening when you look at the list of countries where China has delivered some uh, medical help. Um, most of them are in the global south, and and those countries will will probably remember that. Um, so, so where where are priorities in the global south? I mean, we we know, of course, of the one belt, one road. Is is it uh, is first of all sure. is that partly the global south? Is it Africa? Where where are the areas that Washington needs to be aware of that this competition is happening? Well, that the problem with Beijing is that you never see a list of priorities anywhere. <laughs> Uh, Sounds so, like Washington. So you need to you need to pay attention to to everything. Um, it's also a I think it's also the result of a of an approach that's also very Leninist, which is um, you know whenever you strike strike mush, then you can advance. But if you feel like it's some steel, then you need to retreat. And so giving yourself this ability to be flexible in your in your approach is one of the i think one of the characteristics of how china does strategy um so where exactly in the global south well you're right belt and road gives us some indication of what the geographic scope of this potential expansion is like um belt and road was launched in 2013 uh, it has different economic corridors. That's the best approach. I mean, that's the best definition or geographic definition that we can get out of uh, out of China's vision. Um, uh, those corridors, you know, radiate from China as the hub along um, along Eurasia. Um, going to to Europe along uh, Southeast Asia. 
uh, down to the Indian Ocean, uh, uh, down to South Asia as well, uh, Pakistan, through the Middle East. So, and over time, it has expanded. It has also um, maritime blue corridors now up to the Arctic, down to Oceania. Uh, so it's it's become um, global. Um, when it were was launched, it used to be more Eurasian. That's why I call my book China's Eurasian Century, but then it has expanded in a way that is much more global. I think, in a sense, the, um, the, the, the immediate neighborhood, or what China calls sometimes the periphery, um, is more important still. You know, even if we live in a globalized world, in a dematerialized world, geography still matters. And so the, the, the primary circle uh, where China would like to reinforce its influence is still in its periphery. But of course, you need to understand periphery, not just as as the countries that have a common border with China, but as this wider um, geographic landmass right. uh, that expands all the way to, to Europe. And, and in that, um, does this discourse power play a role? I mean, what, what we think we're seeing, of course, is that Beijing is offering aid, it's offering loans, it's building infrastructure, uh, it's tying them in, whether debt trap diplomacy is as you know, prevalent a factor as, as we'd like to think or not. But again, you start off by talking about the power of words, the power of articulating a different vision. Is that solely internal for uh, the party and the party's ability to express its vision for the world to the Chinese people? Or does this discourse power actually play out in the global south where questions about democracy, questions about liberalism and free markets are under attack? Yes, and, and one of those uh, very clear illustration of that is the community of shared future or community of common destiny, as it used to be translated. Um, this this also is a it's a slogan that is repeated over and over again uh, by the the Chinese uh, official representatives. It's another one of these slogans that people tend to dismiss because it's a bit you know clunky and and doesn't really we don't really understand it or it sounds lofty. Um, but the the underlying um, a meaning of, of this concept is exactly that kind of world order that China would want to see appear, which is a, a, a community, a grouping of countries that revolve around China um, as, as its core or as its uh, guiding light somehow. Um, so this term has been... Um, uh, put into the Chinese, the PRC constitution two years ago. Um, and it has also been put into some uh, UN resolutions. So when we're talking about discourse power and the power of words, this is one of the way where China is pushing diplomatically with the help of some of these countries in the global south to have this um, uh, these terms that are essentially 
party created terms enshrined into international organizations and institutions. That's one way uh, of which uh, to show that this is not just an internal discourse, but it really is reaching out now um, outside of the world. Um, mm -hmm. Beijing is trying to create also some, um, some, um, how do you say, equivalencies be between the Belt and Road Initiative and the UN uh, Sustainable Development uh, Goals. Mm -hmm. um, and as if both of them were equal and, um, you know, uh, usable in, in any in any in any way, uh, one for the other. Um, so that's also a way where discourse power is exercised. Um, and, 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 and just, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I just want to ask at, the, at that point because it's a, a good point when you're bringing in the UN, which of course is based on an entirely different set of what were assumed to be universal principles. The flip side of discourse power is essentially delegitimizing liberal concepts, Western concepts. And and in a way then, I, I'm not sure, I don't remember if you actually use this explicitly in the report, although others uh, of course have said it, is that what, what the party is trying to do in many ways, and, and utilizing discourse power as one of these tools, is by neutralizing liberal values and liberal concepts or delegitimizing them, it's making the world safe for the party. Which, I mean, is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, it, it, that's part of it. But I think it now it also goes beyond that. I think it's like it's like the concept of active defense. It's like at first it starts as a pure defensive move, right? Um, the CCP is a one-party state um, and feels uh, threatened by the idea of democracy, right? It's a, it's basically a, um, an existential threat to its own survival, to its own rule. So to protect itself against uh, peaceful evolution, in quote-unquote, it has tried to um, inculcate uh, patriotic, ed patriotic education to its children, uh, to you know, create a great firewall around its uh, cyberspace, um, to squash dissent at home. So it starts internally. But then there's also this feeling that those ideas are very powerful and they can topple governments around the world. Look at what happened in the post-Soviet space, the color revolutions. Look at what happened in the Middle East with the the, the the Arab Springs. And from Beijing's perspective, this is very dangerous. So it's these ideas and, and values are very powerful. And you need to protect yourself, not just internally, domestically, but also on the global stage. So yes, it stems from this insecurity uh, and from the, the necessity to protect the party but you can see that it has some applications that are now global um, in, in, in pushing back against the, the promotion and the spread of these uh, values and of, these, of this system of, of government. Um, you are protecting the party. And as, as China becomes 
stronger, more powerful. It has more and more instruments at its disposal to push against it. And not just, again, not just in its own country, but also in international institutions, in regional institutions, um, existing ones, and also alternative ones that it's creating in order to push for its favored uh, concepts and, and values. So this, um, I, I want to go back, we probably should have talked about this a little earlier, but I think it, it also fits in with this discussion of, of the, the, the the values that China is pushing, or and again, we talk about this, we're talking about the party, pushing on the international stage, uh, which is the question of ideology. You um, you quote the uh, um, the public intellectual uh, professor in, in China, Xu Zhangrun, who talks about um, basically the ideology of the party has has died. It's become sterile. It it, it no longer can can activate um, belief in the way that that it used to. And yet, uh, the if you look at the the infamous document number nine, if you look at statements by Xi Jinping or or others in the the ruling circle, um, they're repeatedly attempting to revitalize the ideological content, uh, both of education and of the, uh, quite frankly, of the way that the party relates to the people now. Mm -hmm. So what is your take on, on the ideolo the ideological saliency today of the party? We, we have lost the ability to really think seriously about ideology in the West since the end mm -hmm. of the Cold War. Is mm -hmm. that a mistake in dealing with China? Yeah, I think it's a mistake, but it's also not an easy task because, again, I think the, the party's ideology is is this mix that I tried to describe earlier in our conversation that is, it's difficult to pin it down exactly, you know, is it, uh, it's not revolutionary anymore, it's not purely communist anymore, the way that the Soviet Union or that, you know, China in the 50s and 60s, 60s was, um, it, it has a, a bedrock of, of Marxist-Leninism. Um, it's still very visible in its uh, political structure. Um, it has also, again, elements of uh, capitalism. Uh, it's not a fully planned economy. It has some elements of planning, but not, not just that. Um, it leaves some you know, space for private uh, enterprise as well. So it's not a 100% uh, planned economy. Um, at the same time, I think it the, the party itself, you know, has felt like its population needs some, I mean, since the end of the Cold War and, and the collapse of the Soviet Union, that uh, communism was not necessarily the ideology that would move the people. So, um, especially after, after Tiananmen, um, what was given uh, as a sort of a social contract was... Um, economic development. This was not really an ideology, but it was the way that the party uh, tended to base it, its legitimacy. Um, now, what you see more and more is a, an evolution into something that is more nationalistic, especially after the 2008, after the uh, aftermath of the global financial crisis, you know, the the hosting of the uh, uh, Olympic Games in Beijing. You can you can start to see it emerging already back then. Um, 
not just based on the um, sentiment of uh, the humiliation of the of the century of humiliations, but more and more into this model um, that is supposed to show to its own population the accomplishments for which they can be proud of. So it's uh, it's. It, it's both a nationalism that is based on um, the need to erase uh, these past humiliations at the hands of the Western powers, but also more and more as something um, to be proud of, something based on, on, on national pride. Um, okay. So that's, that's also part of, part of the, uh, the ingredients of this ideology. Right, and and clearly it's something that again we we have uh, sort of lost. I think the facility with, and uh, people will say, and I mean I've heard it in D.C. Look, if you make this about an ideological competition between Beijing and the U.S., you'll lose people right off the bat. That you know that, that we're still in the end of history phase, mm-hmm. and and that's clearly not the case. I think with with the party. Um, so last question. Uh, which is to bring us to your conclusion uh, in this report, which is um, what you say that China, or again, Beijing, what the party is looking for, is a partial, loose, and malleable hegemony. So we have debates. Does China want to rule the world? Does it want to overthrow the system? You go through some of that, and then you come up with this uh, conclusion that the vision for the new world order is a partial, loose, and malleable hegemony. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so it's true that people, when they think about China's rise, you know, the immediate um, standard for China's rise that, that comes to mind is the American model. Um, but Beijing doesn't necessarily want to replicate that model, um, doesn't want to replicate the Soviet model either doesn't want to replicate even the British model. It, it has to be China's own way of rising and China's own way of, uh, of uh, asserting its precedence uh, over the world. Um, and there too, you know, it's, it's fascinating to, to, to really read these debates because I, I cannot think of another country of or power that is putting so much intellectual effort in trying to organize its own vision. That that was really an, an interesting experience for me when I was doing the research for, for this report. Um, it's self-evaluating, assessing others, you know, and, and, and going back to its own um, models of um, empire, you know, it's not like China has been, it's not the first time that China is rising. China has been rising many times in the past. And so the, the, the Chinese intellectuals are actually going back to those uh, times when China was their preponderant power in the region to perhaps take some inspiration uh, in, in those, you know, old models. Of course, it's not like they're saying we want to return uh, to the tributary system. They, they, don't, they don't really say it um, this way. Um, that would be impossible in a, in a century where uh, you know, sovereign equality is still uh, the, the, the preferred way to go. Nobody wants to be a vassal state of Beijing, obviously. Um, but 
But again, I think they, they think that this is a very attractive model, maybe softened in a way, and they're they're trying to fidget with, with this idea. So what I propose in, in in the in the report, it's not a definite answer, it's more of a snapshot of where the current um, uh, debates um, look like and, and seem to point to. So as as I've read them, this is the best way I've I've come to um, to describe it. I I wish I could have found something more I don't know catchy or something, but partial hegemony, loose partial loose and malleable hegemony, partial because I I really think that in the way they describe it, it looks like more of a Chinese sphere of influence rather than an, a global domination. Um, it's unspecified in its size. Um, it's not really sure what are the limits or the boundaries of this sphere of influence. Um, probably along the Belt and Road, probably Global South. Uh, that's that can be a good, perhaps, uh, geographical scope. Lose hegemony because it's not a form of uh, hegemony that is. Um, with a direct control over territories or governments, not like the British used to do, for example. So it's looser. And malleable, this this is the, the best term I came to um, choose because of its of its um, indifference to geography or ideology. So that means that um, even countries that are far away from China and that don't have the same uh, political system could be included in 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 this uh, world system. So it's not premised on on uh, on an ideological or a geographical um, vision. It's more about who is different to China's interests. And of course, this deference is not something just symbolic. It also has some very concrete applications into basically uh, leaving China um, uh, and putting China's interests first before their own interests. So I think that's the broad idea behind this malleable hegemony. Well, I can't say that reading the report it is a happy experience. Uh, it is, it is so comprehensive, but it is also, I think, better than so many things that many of us have read. Makes clear the scale of the challenge, but even more than the scale, as you said, that the comprehensiveness and and the articulated nature of it, that the Chinese, and again, talking about the party, are spending an enormous amount of time thinking about these things. And you talk, in fact, a lot about the scholars that are part of this uh, this um, mm. enterprise, uh, mm. scholars that we know that we would meet at, at think tanks and the like, but who are are essentially enlisted and enrolled in helping to articulate some of these visions and um, give the justification. So it's not it's not an it's not a read where you'll finish the report and say, ah, oh, you know, there's nothing to worry about and they're overrated. You do talk about challenges and you do talk about limitations, but I think more than anything, you talk about 
how we need to take it seriously. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, the report is China's vision for a new world order. It is at the NBR website, which is nbr.org, uh, which everyone can anyone can go to. Um, Thank you so much for taking time uh, to join us and explain this. And I, I think for our listeners who have uh, been with us talking about a lot of different aspects about China, this in many ways is sort of a capstone to what it is that we face and why, again, we really need to take it very seriously. So thank you, Nadej. Well, thank you, Misha. And thanks to John as well, who has yes. disappeared from the conversation. Well, I unfortunately, he would offer some baguette by now. He, he, well, he, I think he actually ran out to get the baguettes. And, and unfortunately, <laughs> we, right. our time is up, That's so right. we're going to end before he brings them back. <laughs> uh, but thank you all, and thank you again for joining us for the Pacific Century. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, Misha. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.